about 50 years ago, during the first three or four days of my very first or early seven-day session, I was having to face myself, as we all do, and I was feeling miserable. I was feeling tired. I was telling myself I'd had it. I was questioning if I could go on. And I began to hope that something would happen, anything would happen to get me out of Sishin. I hope even an earthquake. <laughs> and suddenly, I began hearing fire alarms and shouting. And fire trucks came, and the, fire, the house right next door to us, right across the drive, was on fire. And we all, of course, went running out of the Zendo. And in one instant, all fatigue, all worry, all self-concern just vanished. And I was full of energy, wanted to jump in and help. And then, after the excitement, we all traipsed back in and continued session. But I realized at that moment, especially in round reflection after it, that the mind that I had generated of, oh, woe is me, I'm so tired, oh, I'm so this, I'm so that, was all generated by my thinking. And that the reality was, I had lots of vitality in there. Lots of reserve energy. And it's still true. Even as an elderly person, there's more reserve energy than I think there is. And each person, of course, as we age, we have different capacities. But we always have the ability to go beyond what the mind thinks is possible. So one of the virtues, one of the blessings, one of the uh, good aspects of Sashin, of course, is we get to face ourselves. We get to know our own mind. We get to know and we get to learn how do these thoughts and emotions, what's the cycle like? How do they operate? And it's actually hard to do. I mean, if you look around at our whole culture, how many people really want to see how the mind really works? And people are loath to do that because it's hard work to meet our own mind, to face the part of us that wants to run from life is not easy. And sadly, the default position of so many people is rather than looking at the nature of their own mind and watching how this constellation of sensations and thoughts is put together, we just fall back on being right. Being right, you know, being right is so delicious. Love to be right and tell you, I told you so. You poor nincompoop. You know? <laughs> the egoistic self-mind just loves that, loves that, loves that. And it's a whole lot easier to be right than it is to actually look at the nature of mind.
because the nature of mind and the nature of life includes easy and hard and soft and, and, and tough and pleasure and pain, and there is no way to avoid it. Even if we retreat into our staunchest defense, we still have good days and bad days. We still have easy and hard. The weather is constantly changing. So it's normal during Sushin to have the opportunity to expand our capacity to be with ourselves. And that's one of the lovely things about Sushin, is it gives us an opportunity to expand our capacity to be with ourselves. You know, when we're watching movies, I keep thinking of, of one of those Star Wars movies where Luke Skywalker is watching his plane go underneath the water and Yoda is telling him, you know, you can, you can, you can, you can bring this up. And, you know, he rouses all of his spiritual power and levitates the machine out of the muck. And in the movies, it looks so easy. You know, you just kind of screw up your face and take a few deep breaths and then miraculously you go through whatever particular trial or challenge there is. It's not so bad. And we think, oh, well, I could do that. But as soon as it gets down to our experience, it's a lot harder to be heroic. As soon as it gets down to I want to really investigate this mind, then of course, the deeper we go, all the fears rise up. All of the obstacles that we have put in place, all the the cocoon-like coverings that we have surrounded ourselves with, so we'll try to feel safe. And thankfully, the blessing of Sashin is that it gives us all these wonderful opportunities to be tolerant, to be more loving, to be kinder. And we have the opportunity to be more tolerant, more loving and kinder to ourselves, of course. All those thoughts, all the inadequacy, all the failures, but also other people. And also all those patterns and habits that we are have relied upon to keep our cocoon and our walls safe, begin to be seen as what they are. Burdensome, separating. If we're fortunate, if we're really fortunate during a session, a bodhisattva comes along who just irritates us to death, who makes loud noises and smells and snores and has poor table manners and is crude, you know? Some inconsequential thing that just grates. And we have the opportunity to then to take this grating and turn it into kindness, turn it into tolerance, expand our capacity to be with the human condition to be with the human world. All of us are inadequate. All of us fail. All of us do stupid things. 
but the capacity to actually have equanimity and tranquility around the nature of the world where people do stupid things and people are inconsiderate and people, that's, that opportunity is part of why we're here. Part of why I think why we're here. So, little inconsequential things like scraping nails across chalkboards. Maybe that's an old image that some people don't realize. We used to have this place that would be filled with chalkboards. We'd have stacks of chalk and that screeching, grating thing, sound that gets on your nerves. Certainly everybody from my generation was familiar with. But when we have things like that, rather than taking them in the ordinary way of there's an irritant, let's get rid of it. I don't like that, let's get rid of it. You know, I don't like it, let's kill it. We turn the mind back on the mind and say, let's look at my own intolerance. Sleep is a good example. You know, people come and they have all these ideas about sleep and all these ideas about the perfect night's sleep and how much they need. And it's got to look like this. It's got to be shaped like that. And then, of course, we get into reality and it doesn't look like that. You know, everybody has like seven different sleep cycles. There are seven different sleep patterns. Sometimes we stay awake late and sometimes we stay awake, go to bed early and sometimes we're really tired and sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night and sometimes we wake up early in the morning. You know, this, this myth of of the machine-like falling asleep, you lie in bed, you take three deep breaths, you go unconscious with a peaceful oblivion until the time you wake up in the morning refreshed and renewed. It's a myth. It doesn't happen like that. You know, at least that's my experience. It's just a myth. So the reality is some nights we're restless and some nights we toss and turn and some nights we're deeply asleep and some nights we feel very content and some nights we're full of anxiety and some nights things come up. Some nights all of our neighbors are making noise and some nights the cats are screeching and some nights, you know, who knows what. That's normal. And our capacity to be tolerant of what's normal is part of practice. One of the interesting challenges of Sashin is this sleep issue. There is nothing that makes the ego come roaring up like discomfort. And we start feeling uncomfortable and immediately we start saying, I, me, and my, I, me, and my, I need this, I need that. And to have the capacity to actually turn and look at the nature of mind and say, is that really true? I'm really going to die if I sit here for another five minutes. Rarely is true, my experience. So we are always more resilient than we think we are. And what limits us from our capacity for tolerance, for loving kindness, for peace, for inclusivity, is how we think and evaluate and judge. It's our main limitation. It's not those people and things out there, that's not the limitation. They're only blessings. We have a bodhisattva who comes along, who stirs us up, is required for us to expand our own capacity.
And of course, that's a hard role to play because everybody kind of, who's not able to look at their own mind, starts pointing the finger at it and saying, oh, there's the problem, there's the problem, there's the problem. But it's never out there, it's right here. So there are some important practical things, though, to deal with some of the challenges that come up in Sishin. The number one thing for any of life's travails, the number one thing is to recognize that it is impermanent, that it's going to change. And perhaps the single most important teaching in Dharma is to watch everything constantly change. We're never stuck. Even the stories that go around and around and around in our mind or the songs or the mind worms, they change. Their, their change is part of their nature. So the number one thing for any situation is to really not just say, this too will pass. That means I hate this, but I'll do my best to tolerate it until it's gone but to actually say, the nature of this is change. The nature of my mind is change. When we don't realize that, then we keep running to try to make it better, to try to escape it. We keep running. But if we don't run, it will change all by itself. And it will change in its own time, maybe not according to my agenda, but everything disappears. Everybody goes through our life. We let things pass through and without passing out. Now, the second point is we talk here about concentration and we talk about you know, being one with and we talk about um, uh, being mindful all the time. But the mind, the thinking mind, is never constant. It too is always changing. Awareness, in a way, is always changing. Brighter, dimmer, comes, goes. We're aware of awareness. We've lost awareness. It's not mechanical. Practice is not mechanical. We're not samadhi machines. We're not on automatic. You know, the people come to the idea of session sometimes, and they think, oh, I'll go in, I'll push this button, and then I'll go into deep samadhi, and then I'll be awakened, and I'll come out the other end. It doesn't work that way. Because we are vibrant and alive, because we are breathing, everything is fluctuating. Experience always fluctuating. Machines, stories, conclusions often don't. So sometimes, as a real, live, breathing human being, We have to be willing to fail. We have to be willing to be inadequate. Without thinking I'm inadequate and I'm failing, we have to be willing to allow the experience of failure and inadequacy to, too, flow through without the inner critic coming in and saying, that's real, that's real, that's you. Everything flows through. And we just keep returning, we keep returning, keep going. Keep returning. Perhaps that is the, the number one 
thing on the spiritual path, you know, or any path. You're taking a trek. You just keep coming back to the path and take another step. Back, you get lost, you fall down, you're hungry, you take a break, you come back to the path, you take another step, take another step. And as long as you come back to the path and are taking another step, sooner or later, you get to the end. So another approach when we encounter these obstacles is, first off, we are all inadequate and broken compared to the image that we have of ourselves in our mind. I think I mentioned this in the beginning. But we have this image, I should be. I should be bright and shining and I should be calm and I should be serene and I should be six feet tall or seven feet tall and I should, be, I should look like this and I should weigh this much and I should talk like this. And, and we're not. We all have some, some overlay of who we think we are, what our posture should be like, what our breath should be like, how our mind should be like. We have to let go of all that. All that. It's just obscures things. <clears throat> we let go of our picture how things should be, come back to how things are. And as soon as we come back to how things are and really practice with acceptance and tolerance of how things are, a lot of the problems just disappear. There's another way of looking at these, these particular excitements, these particular um, opportunities. Sometimes what we regard as distress is actually a kind of energy that's beginning to bubble up. So if we have intense aversion, that intensity is an energy. And sometimes, as the energy begins moving in our system and begins to infuse us, there are, we're not used to holding that. We feel a little shaky, we feel a little nervous, we feel a little whatever. Pain and discomfort has enormous energy to it. So, in working with pain, there are several ways. The number one way, I think, is to expand the view. It's always good. Expand the view from, oh, my back is killing me, to most of my body is actually quite comfortable. And my back is killing me. And my back is not killing me. And my back just hurts. To expand the view so that the thing that is irritating us is only a small part of the field instead of the whole of the field. The big view always puts things into perspective. Secondly, we have the capacity to look into anything, to see what it's made of to see how inconstant it is, to see what its owner is, to see what it, our stem is from. So we can look 
deeply into pain and watch it quivering and shaking. We can look deeply into pain and see the space that's in pain. We can look deeply into pain and watch it just bubbling up. That enormous energy bubbling up out of nowhere. And the third way is after a while you say, eh, so what? You know, my back hurts. All right. I'm going to let my back hurt for the next three days and then it will go away. My shoulder hurts. Okay, I'll just keep doing whatever I need to do and it will go. And without pretending that it's without becoming indifferent and numb, we simply accept this is the way it is. I've got a human body, it hurts. My shoulder hurt, my back hurts, my knees hurt, my arm hurt, my legs hurt, my head hurts. Just the way it is. Temporary. And so at a certain point, you just say, you know, this is not worth spending any energy on it. And if it's something that's severe, you do what you need to do. But if you have intense pain, then there are a few things, in addition to this view that I'm talking about, these three views. You can adjust your posture, you can sit on the chair, you can stand up, you can breathe deeply. If you're going to stand up, don't stand up within five minutes of the bell. It's always odd to see the bell. We know the bell is going to ring soon. And just before it rings, somebody stands up. Be more tolerant. Just hold on a little longer. Get another cushion. Do some yoga. We've got massaging things back in the guest area. In dealing with pain, we have greater capacity than we think, and we can befriend our own pain. It's our body, our body-mind. We can be friendly toward our body-mind instead of hostile, saying, oh, I'd like to cut off my left arm, I don't like it. That's not very skillful. We have greater capacity than we think. So befriend the body. You know, if you're young and vital and you've got something that's irritating you, uh, <clears throat> it somehow is harder in a way to do it than if you're, I've got a chronic illness and you know it's not going away, go, you know it's not going to go away, or you're an old, fuddly person and you know it's not going to get better, then you have to become friends with it. You have to align yourself with it. But if you're young and vital, you think, well, yeah, I can, I can get rid of this. Now, no matter how long we've practiced, no matter how deep our particular samadhi, our particular concentration is, there's always more to be seen. Always. Always more interesting things will reveal themselves as we allow them to do so. We don't have to think, I want to go get that thing, 
But when we are concentrated, when we are present, when we begin to relax the, the bonds, the binds, the fetters that we put on ourselves, then stuff becomes bubbling up. Insights, wisdom, dreams, old traumas, old memories, all start coming up. And to the degree we can allow them to arise, exist, and disappear, to arise, not be afraid of them, not fix them, not write them down in our journal, but arise, allow them to exist and disappear, is a way of, of actually allowing them to, to, to move through instead of grabbing a hold of them, responding and trying to fix them and reacting to them and just putting them back in the, in the mill. The more we can allow our own experience, our own karmic history, the more we can allow the karma that we have generated to be present and to flow through, the less karmic traces there are. But there's always surprises. Always as part of the excitement of practice. Always surprises. Always interesting things. And we just have to keep going. Now that, that principle of continuing re return, you know, an anal a classic analogy is that we're in a house by the ocean and we decide we want to go and look for something in the ocean, see the, see the fish go snorkeling. And we start walking to the ocean, but, you know, halfway there we get tired and so we go home. The next day we go back, we're almost there, but we get discouraged and we go home. And then we go forward and we feel frustrated and we feel hopeless and we keep turning around and going back and we never just keep going through all those feelings to actually make it to the ocean. And finally we come to the ocean and we touch the ocean and we think, ah. But we don't ever jump in. We go up to our knees and we think, ah, that's it, finally. We don't go up to our neck. We don't go deeper and deeper. We don't keep allowing ourselves to settle and settle until we touch the bottom of the ocean. Always something deeper. Sometimes, in practice, we really urge people to put more energy into it, to, to hone your concentration, to be more, more wholehearted. And sometimes we say, settle and let it cruise. And just allow things to be for a while and see what, you know, what the experience is. Many different kinds of ways of working. Zen Master Hong Zhi, the 12th century Chinese teacher, did a couple of chants that we chant, guideposts for the Hall of Pure Bliss and guideposts for Silent Illumination. And they've been chanted in the Zen school for maybe 800 years. 800 years? In Chinese and Japanese and Korean monasteries. These chants are certainly in the Zen school. So here's a way you might begin thinking about these chants that we do. And we sometimes chant all the time. So imagine that we are sitting in the zendo at Great Vow. And you want to, you're sitting in the zendo and you want to describe it to people. 
and you want to describe it in a way that might encourage people to come and see for themselves. So you look around the room, look around the room right now, and you think, well, people are not going to be so interested in the cushions or the furniture. When people came to see the furniture, it would probably be gone by the time they get here. Things change so much. I mean, few people go to Buckingham Palace to see the furniture, you know. So you come in here and you say, I, I want to describe the space. I want to describe the, the flavor of the zendo. Come in and you look around and it's silent, it's serene. No one's talking. There's a bright clarity about it. If you see the Zendo through the YouTube picture, it looks like it's a glowing gem. It looks radiant. You know, everything is golden and shining through, through the YouTube picture. And in a way, I think that may be a cleaner way of seeing it, not through our filters of you know, our own murkiness. Silent and serene. No one's talking. Bright clarity. It's worth a visit. Come in and feel this space. Allow yourself to really feel the energy in the room and you will be spiritually uplifted. People say that all the time, especially sensitive people. They, they come into the zendo and they, they feel the zendo and they, they can feel something something deep and resonates with them. This shining place, if we see it through those eyes, can restore wonder. To see it through the eyes of Zoom, glowing and golden, But it's better in person. So you look, at least I'm looking at the, the Zoom picture, you know, it's so, so lovely, but, but the real thing is so much more vivid and so much more three-dimensional and so much more dynamic and so much more alive. Come and see it. See the refulgence that's radiating from the floor. And actually, the best time to see the Zendo is during Sushin. So he's sitting in this state of mind, like the Zendo, he's sitting in this place saying, I'm trying to describe it. I'm giving you the flavor of it. Come sit in the same room with me. Come in person. Come look around. And Master Hongji, in, after he does those first things, he starts getting poetic trying to communicate the state of mind. You know, you sort of try with words, but the words don't, don't touch it. So then he says, well, look, it's like dew sparkling in the moonlight, endless stars sparkling in the sky. Come. 
see reality unfiltered. Now, here right now in this room, we can be aware of everything in the room, the walls, the stillness, the floor, all the people. But turn your attention to the space and the light right here. This room is filled with space. There is space all around, every direction. It's one room, one environment, one space that's filled with different furniture. And that space is whole and complete. It's a perfect space. You know, the space in this room could not be different than the space in this room. And the space in this room occupies, it can, can surround and contain people and furniture and zabutans and cats and, you know, whatever we bring into it, Buddhas. Now, look at your own body. You are filled with space. Your viscera, your bones, your blood are held in space. Your body occupies space. The space is the same space as in the room. Because space cannot be divided into two. You can't take a sword and cut space into two. Anything we put in space is infinitely, instantly surrounded by space. Our body is filled with space. Our room is filled with space. Everything is filled with space. And if we become quiet and serene and forget words and look directly, we begin to see the spacious nature of everything. We could say that this practice is not silent illumination, it's spacious illumination. Space. We could say it's empty. We could say it is empty and yet flowing. Space has no inside or outside. Natural and wondrous. It's not a matter of thinking and reasoning. Now, if we're aware of space, and all we have to do is just turn our attention to, to the room, to the walls of the room, just, just sit with the awareness of the walls of the room, and, and that awareness contains all of these beings, contains all the furniture, contains all the people. If we're aware of the space of the room by holding our attention on the space, then everything is contained in it, including thought, including black holes, including vacuums. Everything always in space. Space is never blank. It's always filled to the brim.
So part of practice sometimes is to be aware of the furniture, but not to be at the, a victim of it. To be aware of all the situations and peoples held in space, held in the space of my life, held in the space of my awareness. And in that space, there are valiant bodhisattvas operating, meeting great challenges in that space, part of that space. And when our mind can't see the space and the, the vibrancy of the life in that, we sometimes will take great bodhisattvas and, and degenerate them into pitiful victims and see them as small and pitiful and broken. But from the view of great space, they're vibrant, alive, part of the whole picture, essential, and shouldn't be reduced to something inadequate. So from the perspective of space, from the perspective of the perfection of space, and from the perspective of there is space inside us and space outside us just the same, we also partake of that perfection, that wholeness, that completeness. Because that spacious mind, in a way, is more truly who we are than the furniture. The spacious mind that is, contains, and is aware of everything that is flowing through feelings, and thoughts, and people, and sounds, sensations of all sorts, It's all flowing through. And what's it flowing through? It's flowing through the spaciousness of our own nature. It's flowing through the unrecognizable background. Because the eye can't see itself. The background doesn't see itself. And yet, without a background, there is no foreground. So, in that same sense, we have the capacity to witness everything without looking for a witness. Because the witness is not something to be seen. But from this vantage point, we recognize that there are known and unknown elements everywhere. The furniture all of us, is the known. And it's surrounded by the invisible, by that which is always present. To actually have the view of resting in space itself with all of this phenomena moving and 
coming into being and disappearing and flowing through and recognizing that there is visible and invisible is a practice of faith. It's a practice of faith because it cannot be known, even though I'm giving all these words about it, it cannot be known. But when we can recognize that, we begin to recognize there's a great mystery here. There's a great mystery. And I can rest in faith that this great mystery of space and all the things that are coming and flowing into that space and disappearing from space, just as space has a perfection and a wholeness, everything that flows through is nothing but space moving. A dream, as we were saying earlier. And we can practice with a kind of trust. I am not in charge. I'm not in charge of all the furniture. I've got my things I caretake, I'm a caretaker of, but do my best there. This big view, this foundation of truth, is part of why the Buddha says we are all destined to be awakened. We're all destined to be Buddhas, because we already are, because we already are this inclusive space. We hear the sound of the planes. We hear and feel the vibration without any effort. It's just part of space. So again, the bottom line, all these words, the bottom line is don't worry. Just don't worry. Just keep coming back. It's, in a way, that simple. We just don't worry. We just keep coming back, keep coming back. What would our life be like if we were not worried? We had a kind of trust. We had a trust. We had trust in the unfolding of things. You know, they rise, exist, and disappear, all natural, just as we will. And we had trust. Everything is okay. Everything is flowing. Everything. And, you know, we have our things that we were caretakers of or respond to, of course. But how would our life be different if we operated, if we rested in that faith that I'll respond to what I need to respond to. I'll take care of my business. Other people will do, too. You know, I'll just keep coming back to what is fundamental, right here, right now, whole and complete, lacking nothing, my life, my breath. So, don't worry. Don't worry. Everything is okay. And we each have things to do. <laughs> 